Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. This episode deals with pedophilia and graphic depictions of violent crimes. If this is triggering for you, give this one a miss. It's 1987, and a coastal town named Noosa Heads in Queensland is about as idyllic as it gets. On the Sunshine Coast, Noosa Heads isn't yet the popular and developed tourist destination that it is today. It's surrounded by rivers, lookouts, bays, national park, and of course, expansive coastline. Families feel proud to bring their kids up in such a beautiful and safe coastal town where they often play outside until the sun goes down. Sean Kingy is 12 years old, tall for her age with long blonde hair and dark brown eyes. She's described as the kind of girl who would accidentally knock her opponent over a netball and stop to make sure she was okay. She's shy, popular but never cruel. It's a Friday afternoon on November 27. And after school, Sean and her mother Linda go shopping. She has a party that weekend, and so Linda takes her to a fabric shop so together they can make Sean something to wear. At 4.30pm, the pair finish up and head home. While Linda walks home, Sean takes her bike, and for most of the journey, they're together. But when they get to a local park, Linda walks around it while Sean cycles through it passing the tennis courts. When Linda walks through the door, she figures Sean will be a moment behind her. But she waits and she waits. What happened to Sean Kingy that day remains every parent's worst nightmare and would change the beachside town forever. Hers is a name so many Australians won't ever forget. This is True Crime Conversations, hosted by Jesse Stevens and produced by myself, Gia Moylan. A Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. Today's episode is about the abduction and murder of 12-year-old Sean Kingy. Helping us detail this case for you is Dot Whittington, who was working as the Sunshine Coast Bureau Chief for the Daily Sun at the time of the murder. Let's begin on the day 12-year-old Sean Kingy disappeared. It was Friday the 27th of November 1987 and she'd been shopping with her mother. What happened after that? Yes, her mum was going to make her a skirt for a birthday party. She was attending the following day and they'd been out to buy cotton after school. Sean wasn't feeling terribly well that day but they went shopping because she was very excited obviously about the party at the following day. So they'd gone out to buy thread and the mum and daughter went home separately. Mum was walking, Shine was on her yellow bike. 
and she should have been home really long before her mum. The Kingies lady went back and sort of reenacted it and worked it out and said, yes, she definitely should have been home before her mum. Mm. But instead of that, her yellow bike was found abandoned in Pinaroo Park near Noosa Junction. It was an afternoon. It was about, oh, I think 5, 5.30. She just never came home, basically. And when at first she didn't come home and the family were looking for her, did they worry at first or did they think that perhaps she had caught up with friends? No, absolutely worried. They were worried sick right from the beginning. And as Mrs Kingy, as Linda Kingy said at the time, things like this just don't happen in Noosa. There'd never been any crime like this before. And in fact, it was often billed as the when the Sunshine Coast lost its innocence mm. because it was unheard of. Noosa was not like it is now. It was a really small beachside town and things like this just didn't happen there. So, yes, they were instantly worried when she didn't come home. She had last seen her outside a hot bread shop in Noosa Junction at about 5.25 on Friday. What kind of girl was Shan? How did her friends describe her? She was very popular. She was very bright. Her school spoke extremely highly of her. She was vivacious. She was fun. She loved to play netball. She was just a really charming girl, a really charming, beautiful young woman. She would have been 13. It was just before her 13th birthday. She would have turned 13 on the 16th of December. As you say, this was not, you know, something that ordinarily happened with Sean and her parents were immediately worried that something had gone wrong. They reported it to police. What was the first move of the police? Did they take this investigation seriously? Yes, they definitely did. Seriously, in all my time as a journalist, I've never known a case to have such remarkable cooperation of police and media. They used us all the way through and we were more than happy to cooperate. The police worked around the clock on this and they, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, oh, child's missing, yeah, she's run away from home, you know, yeah, we don't take it seriously for another 24 hours. Not at all in this case because it was such an unusual thing. It was an instant response. The Kingies knew that she should have been home at about 5.45. When they went and paced it out, they worked it out, she really should have been there by 5.45. And Mrs Kingy was sick with worry. And she called her husband, who was at a friend's place, and asked him to check on his way home. And then as time went by, nothing happened. It was just fruitless. And they, they actually took the car down and shone the headlines into the park at about 8.15, looking for some sign that she you know, of what might have happened to her. They took a torch and they searched through the park. They went home for photographs and went to the police. And that's where the nightmare began. And it was a nightmare for all of us, really. I think the police felt it. We certainly felt it. And the Kingies, of course, were just, it was just the worst that could happen to anybody ever. Were there any witnesses who had seen her or any information in those first couple of days that helped police? Yeah, uh, there was a couple picnicking at Pinaroo Park on the Friday and they came forward to say they'd gone to the park at about 5.40 and they'd noticed the yellow bicycle lying near the fence and thought it odd but then didn't take much notice until they heard that Sean was missing. Over that first weekend, what did the search for Sean look like? On the Sunday... More than 500 people from the community, because it was a close-knit community, they scoured bushland near where she had disappeared looking for her and all that area, the area where a bike was found, just combing for clues. Then they made a mannequin 
and put it in the nearby shopping centre with what Shan looked like on the day, the bike, her school bag, what was in it, to try and jog people's memories. By the Monday, it was all abduction fears. It was very clear to everybody she'd been abducted. The police and everybody knew that this wasn't just some runaway or disappearance. She had been abducted. How did they know that? What had led them to that conclusion within, you know, three days or so? Probably because Shan was reliable and it wasn't like her. As I said, Noosa was a very innocent place at that point and this sort of thing just didn't happen. Witnesses had reported this vehicle scene and that actually remained crucial over the next few weeks. And that first description that they put out at the beginning of December held through the whole investigation. The police were urgently seeking a white 1972-73 Holden Kingswood station wagon. Three people had identified it as being at the park about the time Sean disappeared. It was dirty white with a sun visor across the front, dull silver mag wheels and possibly curtains in the rear window. And that's when they knew they were seeking a man, about 178 centimetres tall, short brown hair and a plump woman in a blue dress. Every day it was just, we're looking for this white Kingswood. I mean, everybody was on alert. I lived about 30 k's away from Noosa at the time. And even where I was, everybody was looking for that car. (laughs) Like the community just absolutely rallied and were ringing in. Whenever they saw a white Kingswood, you're in trouble because it got reported. This type of car was fairly common at the time. In fact, there were 10,000 white Holden Kingswood station wagons registered in Queensland. But when news of Shan's disappearance spread through the Noosa community, police received another tip-off about a couple driving this kind of vehicle who were acting suspiciously at Castaways Creek on the day she went missing. The person making the report jotted down the couple's number plate, which police found was registered to a Valmay Beck. Beck, a mother of six, and her new husband Barry Watts both had extensive criminal records and both were wanted by Western Australian police. And this wasn't the first time someone had been left unsettled by a close encounter with a couple matching their description. After seeing news coverage of Shan's disappearance that mentioned the White Kings would have interest, a 24-year-old nurse in Ipswich called police to make a report of her own. This is the interview she gave to Crime Investigation Australia about her experience. It was gone the end of my shift. I think the, the unit was busy and it was close to midnight if not after by the time I'd finished work and I'd gone out to my car and I could see this car and it was coming towards me. It was speeding and I'm going, oh dear. And I got in my car and it parked right in front of my passenger side. They slowly inched the car around so that they blocked me from getting from the driver's side at this stage. They were asking me a question and I wound down my window. Excuse me. Just a little bit lost. Can you tell us how to get to North Ipswich? Uh, yeah, just take the main exit out of the hospital and keep going down the main road. It's the exit on your right. Right. Can you, um, can you show us on our reference? Is that all right? Uh-huh. Yeah. He reached into the back of his car as I got out of mine showing him how to get to North Richland and I'm sort of like looking around and at one stage I can remember looking over into the car and seeing in the in the back seat because it was right there that there was all these hessian bags in the in the back and ropes thinking this is not good. So I didn't show that again. 
And he's sort of like getting closer and closer and closer to the point where he was right beside me. He was right here. So just go out the main entrance and keep following. This man just out of nowhere came around the other side of the old morgue and entered into the car park. The man, he jumped away from me. The guy walked past this opposite side of the car. He, he would have seen the whole thing. And I just thought, this is my chance. I have to get out of here. After reporting this incident, police asked the nurse to look at some photographs of potential perpetrators. From these photos, she identified Barry Watts and Valmay Beck as the couple in the car. It was at this point that information about the couple and their car was broadcast nationally to police. Then they launched this massive manhunt for them and it actually went national. Initially it was confined to Noosa and surrounds and they were eventually found in a hotel down on the New South Wales Central Coast and they were arrested there. I do recall somebody saying that Watts was trying to complain that the police had roughed him up and all of us just shrugged our shoulders and said, so what? I mean, (laughs) they didn't have much sympathy, let me tell you that much. Can you describe the atmosphere in Noosa Were people afraid? Like you were saying that this was almost the end of the innocence of that period in Noosa. People were very afraid. Noosa was very afraid because this didn't happen there. So, you know, people weren't going out. They were keeping their kids at home. And we actually had a story about families living in fear after Girl Vanishes. Noosa families put a curfew on their kids because she was missing. This is before they found her. And their parents walked them to school and back. You know, normally they just let them get on their bikes and stuff. The birthday party that she was planning to attend at the Noosa National Park, the venue changed because they were too worried and sick over a disappearance. Because as Mrs Kingy herself said, things like this just don't happen in Noosa. It was six days after Shan's disappearance that a fruit picker came across a body about 12 kilometres from where she went missing. What had happened to Shan? Oh, she was brutally murdered. To be honest, I don't go into it much because when this came up in the court case, I left the room. I didn't want to hear what these monsters had done to a 12-year-old girl. But Barry Watts was known to have said to Velmay Beck that he wanted to be the first and the last. He was looking for a young virgin to take and he wanted to be the first and the last. And they did terrible things. Did they go in in the courtroom into how they coaxed this 12-year-old girl? The court was told that she leaned out of the car and asked her if she, she was looking for a lost dog. And because Shan was a lovely, caring girl, she was very concerned. This woman had lost a dog. And then they dragged her into the car and drove 12 kilometres or so out to the Timbiwa Forest. And that's where they assaulted and, and raped and murdered her. They were just monsters. I mean, I do recall saying to the detective outside the court, because as I said, when they were giving evidence of what had happened to Sean, I left the room. I thought, no, I don't need to hear this. I've seen and heard enough lately. And I was talking to the policeman outside and I just said, oh, that woman, how could a mother of six do that to a child? And he said, no, Barry Watts is the evil one. She's just pathetic and a puppet. But he was pure evil, pure evil. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Jessie Stevens. I'm speaking with journalist Dot Whittington about the murder of Sean Kingy in Noosa in 1987.
Two weeks after Sean Kingy's disappearance, Valmay Beck and Barry Watts were arrested. During police interrogation, Watts remained quiet, but Beck confessed to what they'd done and told police where they could find evidence they'd disposed of. They were then put in holding cells where listening devices had been installed so police could try to verify her side of the story. This is how the covert operation unfolded, according to two detectives on the case. We'd set up the cells so that they could communicate, but there was a vacant cell in between and they had to talk out louder. You know, if they'd have been next door to each other, they could have whispered. And what kept calling the detectives, backyard detectives, and they won't get anything out of us. And she then says after a while, oh, I've told them all about it, Barry. And he says, uh, you haven't told them about the others, have you? And she said, oh, no, no, not the others. He was probably cunning enough to realise that the cells could be taped and uh, he tried to make communications with her without saying too much. But his inquisitive nature couldn't help, help himself and um, as a result he uh, suggested to her that she should find something over in her cell and um, kill herself. The purpose of that being is that obviously if uh, she'd killed herself that any evidence that she had just given the police would be totally useless in a court. Did the court suggest that they were both equally as responsible for this crime? Yes, pretty much, yes. They were both conjointly charged. There were four charges of deprivation of liberty, carnal knowledge against the order of nature, rape and murder at Noosa on November 27. And do you know anything else about their criminal past, either separately or together? They had a history. They definitely had a history and they... They'd left Western Australia where they'd been on charges there as well and then they'd tried to get the woman in Ipswich because they came from out that way at Rosewood and they'd gone up to the Sunshine Coast for the day. They were parked, I think, near Sunshine Beach or somewhere. They were looking for someone, looking for a girl and then they found Sean at Noosa Junction at 5.30. Did either of them show any remorse for what they'd done? Well, Beck tried to cover her face while she was being led into the court, but she was quite calm in the dock. Watts didn't have any shoes. He still had bare feet when he appeared, and he just was there between two detectives. I couldn't say they looked repentant. They didn't. But the outrage was huge. I mean, there were massive calls for the death penalty to be reinstated, even from the state government. One of the ministers called for it to be reinstated. And I remember... The phone rang and it was an old lady from the Noosa Twanton CWA who said to me, Deary, if they're looking for someone to actually push the button, then I'll do it because the outrage was such. that. And when the van left the courthouse, there was a crowd there. There were nooses thrown at it, rocks, and someone was hammering on the door of the police van and broke the window as they chased it out of the court precinct. Being in that courtroom and in the presence of people that were responsible for one of the most heinous crimes you can imagine. Can you describe what they were like? One thing I can say there is that when we went into the court that day, it's the only time I've ever been shook down, you know, like felt for a weapon. (laughs) And I also remember saying to one of the policemen outside the court, boy, if that had been my daughter, I reckon I would have had a gun strapped to my thigh and I would have taken him out. And he said, if that had been your daughter, we probably wouldn't have found it either. That was the level of hatred for these people, which probably, you know, is contemptuous of the court or something, but the level was 
like they were just hated and despised. And I think they felt that. They were just a couple of losers who, who were just led into the court. Like I said, what didn't have shoes on. Valmay was there with trying to keep her head covered. She didn't want to, you know, have a face showing. He didn't seem to mind. And they just, yeah, stood in the dock. It was a very, because everybody had been felt for weapons on or whatever they were feeling for on the way in, there was quite a high degree of anxiety in the court and expectation perhaps and I think a little bit of curiosity, like who are these monsters, like who would do that? And do you think the fact that she did have children of her own really changed how people looked at her and thought how could she be capable of that? Definitely. I think from a community perspective, we all tended to blame her more Mm. because she was a mother and mothers with six kids don't do this to a child because there were atrocities committed on Shan. It wasn't just a straight murder or a straight rape. This was really revolting atrocity stuff. And because of the horrors of that, it was how could a woman do that? How could, because this was 1987, you know, how could a woman do that and how could a mother do that? So, yes, a lot of the hatred was very much directed at Valmay when, in fact, she was just pathetic. She was 44, he was 33, keen to keep the boyfriend, keen to make him happy. So, therefore, I'll help you fulfil this lifelong wish of yours, which was to be the first and the last. After the evidence was heard in court, it took a jury three hours to find Beck guilty. She received a sentence of life in prison. It took them more than six hours to find Watts guilty. He was also given a life sentence with the directive from the judge that he never be released. Do you think these two were responsible for any other crimes like this? Because there was suggestion. Oh, most certainly, yes. I did a few stories on it, uh, you know, as the years rolled by. I kept writing things about it, letters I'd read of theirs from jail and things like that. But, yeah, they were up to no good in Western Australia. They were living in Rosewood. They'd attacked the girl in Ipswich, which they were charged with, but the Sean Kingy killing was far and away the big one. That was their big one. In the years after their convictions, Valmay Beck divorced Barry Watts, saying she regretted everything she had ever done with him. She applied for parole three times while in prison and each time was denied. By 2008, Beck's health had seriously declined and she was placed in an induced coma following heart surgery. She died at Townsville Hospital without regaining consciousness. Barry Watts, meanwhile, remains alive but still in prison. Dot, finally, what was it like covering this story as it unfolded? Because this was one of the most horrific crimes and, as you said, you had to leave the courtroom because it was all a bit too much. What toll did it take on you? You know, these days you'd get counselling after a case like that. In those days we just went home and drank lots of beer. And I had a two-year-old child at the time and I remember she came into my office one day and said, Mum, why are you crying? Because I was just, it had just got to me after about a week. I was just sitting at my computer bawling my eyes out. And I said, I'm just crying for a little girl lost. You know, it was just, I mean, I can still cry thinking about it because it, it was one of those cases that it was sort of there but for the grace of God go I. You know, the Kingies didn't deserve this. Shan didn't deserve it. She was well-loved and popular. A principal said she was really looking forward to going on to high school next year. Everybody was happy. She was just an ordinary kid going about ordinary things when 
you know, in a place where this sort of thing doesn't happen, it did. Thanks to our guest, Dot Whittington, for assisting us to tell Sean's story. Dot was working as a Sunshine Coast Bureau Chief for the Daily Sun at the time of Sean's disappearance and was one of only two local journalists who were covering the case from the day Sean was reported missing. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Jessie Stevens, and my executive producer is Gia Moylan. If you'd like to find out more about the show, don't forget to join our online community. Just search for True Crime Conversations on Facebook and make a request to join.